Okay, so turn to your Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 7, Bible's in the back again, if you don't have one, it is yours, take that with you. We're continuing our study of Samuel, it's one book in the Hebrew canon, but we're in 2 Samuel chapter 7, as I said last week, um, this chapter, this narrative, this event that's going on in chapter 7 is crucial in understanding not only the work of God and the promises of God in the Old Testament, but it is also crucial to understand what's going on in, in the history of redemption in chapter 7 with the Davidic covenant, to understand the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not only what God is doing and the promises that he made in redemption, but understand who Jesus is, you've got to understand and learn what Second Samuel is all about. We learned last week that God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. A covenant is an oath-bound relationship between two or more parties. And in divine covenants that we see in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, they are established by God. They are uh, by his own prerogative. He makes the covenant. In chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, it's a time in redemptive history where God fulfills earlier covenantal promises and continues so his past promises and then it's looking forward and continues his redemption in mankind for all of mankind, what is called the Davidic covenant, the covenant made to King David, which will ultimately have its fulfillment in the person of Christ and then in his coming return and reign over God's new creation. I don't want to rehash covenants. Let me just say quickly, the CDs are in the back there. You go online, you go watch it, you can download it. Um, Just quickly, God makes covenant. God made a covenant with Adam called the Adamic covenant. Although Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 does not have the word covenant in it, we find it elsewhere in Scripture. There's curses, there's blessings. We know that Adam was to obey and be blessed and to live. If he rebelled, which he did, and disobeyed, there'll be curses. And yet we know God sent Adam away from his presence because he rebelled against him. But God speaks grace. Remember, we talked about in Genesis 3.15. If you don't know Genesis 3.15, mark it in your Bible, because it really is the first gospel. It is when God speaks in the midst of chaos and rebellion, the gospel. In, in an infancy form, it's, it's, it's given to us in greater depth, what they call a progressive revelation. God reveals more and more of that truth. But it begins in Genesis 3.15 when he steps in and he says, I will, not I might. I'm making this promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God gives us this grace, this promise that a man will come. He will deliver us. He, he, will, he will crush the head of Satan, although he himself will be bruised. But a, he will come. The seed will come and he will deliver us and forgive us and, and redeem us. And the seed of the woman is, is carried on into the covenant that God makes with Adam. Right? He makes a covenant with Adam. Well, first, then Noah, then Adam. Uh, and God makes, uh, uh, calls this man Abram, gives him the name Abraham, meaning father of many nations, promises him a great name, promises in covenant with him a land and a descendant, descendants, and through a descendant, a seed of Adam, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Paul calls it the gospel. Through, through the seed, through the lineage, through the, through, through the uh, offspring of Abraham, someone will come and deliver us. It's God's promise. And God makes a promise and makes a covenant with Israel through Moses that he will be their God. He will be uh, to them not only their God, but he will make them a holy nation, a priest. And, and although there are stipulations, curses, and, and blessings, there's also grace in that covenant as well. And, and, and there are differences, and we don't want to get into it, I don't have time, differences in the covenants, but they're also very similar. So there, there's, there, there's, there's similarities and there are differences, uh, but they're connected. They're connected because it is one God making the covenants with his people. It is about his, his character and his nature, and ultimately all the covenants will point to the work of Jesus. But on the way from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses on to Jesus. God makes a covenant with David. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in many ways the covenants he had made before come to a culmination with David pointing to the work 
of King Jesus. That is why the New Testament opens up with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Look with me at the covenant God is making with David. Turn to chapter 7. You have to understand a little bit of this covenant to understand the rest of the chapter we'll look at today, 18 through 29. So God steps in and says to David through the prophet Nathan, verse 9, I will make you, David, a great name. Verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people. Verse 11, the Lord declares to David, I will make you a dynasty, a house. Even though, verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up an offspring after you. In other words, this this covenant I'm making with you, David, cannot be destroyed by death. Someone will be raised up from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He will build my house. We know that to be Solomon. Upon that lineage, that dynasty that David, uh, uh, that God is working through David, he says, I will establish his kingdom forever. Verse 13, he'll build me a house, a kingdom, a throne that will last forever. I will be to him a father. He's talking about Solomon. He'll be to me a son. Even though he commits sin, I will discipline him. So not only was the covenant that God is making with David cannot be destroyed by death, it cannot be disbanded by disobedience. We're going to see that in a minute. Even though your son will sin, I will, I will discipline him, verse, uh, verse 15. But my steadfast love, my said, my covenant love will not Depart from him. Can't be disbanded by disobedience. And look, it's not dissolved by duration either. Verse 16. And your house, your dynasty, your legacy, your kingdom shall be made sure, permanent, absolute, forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God makes a promise and enters into a, a covenant with David saying that his name will be great. There'll be a place for God's people to dwell. And an offspring, his seed, someone will come from David who will be the ultimate king who will sit on an eternal throne. Sound familiar? God made that promise to Abraham. And the continuation of the promise made to end Abraham again is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus who is the king of kings. That's where we get our Uh, title, our, our, our sermon series title, The King of Kings. This is the work of God. This is the work we saw in Bless the Lord. Uh, I I was thinking as, as, you know, Regan and I talk about music, but he he picks the songs and, and right on cue, you know, it's, it's, we're just going to bless you and praise you because of who you are all the days of our life. And this is what's happening right now. Because now David not only receives this covenant promise from God through Nathan, David now is responding. David is recognizing, verse 18 through 29, he's responding that God has not abandoned his creation, that he is working for his glory and our good in creation, and that his love is, is, is seen most brilliantly and brightly in the gospel. And David then bursts in verse 18 with praise. And that's my prayer. That's my prayer. My, my prayer this morning as we look at these verses, as he moves from the promises of God given to him by grace to the praise of God because of his grace, that we too would see this covenant promise. We go to communion and, and, and worship and, and be grateful and thankful as David is in this chapter. Three very simple outline. Three simple movements in the outline. The present, David's going to rehearse and think through as he praises God for the present situation. His past, he'll remember things in Israel's past and then look forward to the future in this glorious ending of this petition that God will keep his promises. Hear the word of the Lord. Verse 18, chapter 7. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servants, O Lord God. 
verse 21. It highlights it. Because of your promise, some of you, if you have an NAS, your word, according to your heart, your promise, your heart, and you have brought about all this greatness, you, to make your servant, you're the king, I'm the servant, know it. Now, what's interesting about this text immediately you'll see is the the primary or the customary posture of prayer in those days was standing or kneeling. And the fact that David now is sitting or she sat before the Lord is something to think about for a moment. The verb sat is the same verb used, Hebrew verb used in in, in chapter two, where where the translated translated to dwell. Look at verse two. See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Remember, David's looking around. He's, he is in this illustrious home, and, and the ark of God is, is in a tent. Therefore, it is probable, and I, it doesn't say so, but I think so for sure, I'm, I'm pretty sure, that David has gone into the presence of God to sit because he's sitting in the tent by the ark of God. Remember, the ark was a visible manifestation of the presence of God, the power of God, the reign of God, the rule of God. And here is David, like a little child, going into the tent and sitting before the Lord. He, he's almost, if you could read this text in its entirety, and I want to uh, recommend you do that this week, he's almost breathless. I mean, he speaks, but it's, it's, there's this breathlessness over the grace of God in his life. And notice his response in prayer does not begin with a plea but with praise, not, not an appeal, but amazement, not with worry, what do I do now, but with wonder, well, who am I, O oh Lord, O oh God? What is my house that you have brought me thus far? In other words, I'm sitting here in your presence being overwhelmed by your kindness and your grace to me. I am here because of you, Lord. Th- that should be the heartfelt passion affection of every follower of Christ. We, we, are, we are ushered into the presence of God by the grace of God. It is the perfect life. It is the wrath-absorbing, substitutionary death of Jesus that allows sinners to enter into the presence of God. The book of Hebrews captures this, the New Testament book, that speaks of the Old Testament sacrifice, almost a commentary to Old Testament sacrifices. Hebrews writes this, when Christ appeared as a high priest through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, not of this creation, he, Jesus, entered once and for all into the holy place, into that presence of God, not by means of the bloods of goats and calves, which they do, in the Old Testament, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, for he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant. Every priest, it says, stands. <laughs> See? Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which could never take away sin. So a priest would go in, and his job would be, when it was time for him to replace the priest, He would sacrifice and take no break. Animal after animal after animal after animal until it was time for the next priest. But when Christ, he says, had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. (laughs) He sat down at the right hand of God. Done. Completed. Therefore, he says, brothers, Since we have confidence now to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up through the curtain, that's that tent, opening of the tent, which is his flesh. We have a great high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. (laughs) Ah, David is sitting before the Lord. Children of God, we get to sit before the presence of God's majesty and marvel at his greatness because of Jesus Christ. That's what verse 19 is all about. This great act you are doing in my life 
is small in comparison to your greatness. No comparison. You orchestrated my deliverance. You delivered me from Saul. You protected me from my enemies. And that was nothing to you, Lord God, Lord, sovereign one. Though my household is insignificant, David's prayer is confident. His dynasty will become great in the future because, why? What's what's David's confidence? Of the proven reliability of God and all that God has promised. The Lord brought him to the point and brought him to this place. It's sufficient for David. The Lord has better things. And, and what more can David say? For you know your servant, O Lord God. You, you know. You see what he's saying? See what he's doing? God has just said to him, listen, you're not going to build a house for me. It's not going to be you. Right? It's not, verse 5, it's not going to be you. There'll be another builder. And yet, what does David do? He doesn't pout. He, he worships. His heart is still grateful for all that God has done. And he worships. He, he just worships. He almost had a loss of words, really. And look at why, verse 21. The promise, the plan, and the purposes of God belong to God alone. Because of your promises, your word, according to your heart, what the greatness you brought about uh, to make your servant know it. The promises that God is going to fulfill through David are not contingent. The promises that God is going to fulfill through David, listen, is not contingent upon David. And we could praise God for that. As we'll see in a few chapters, David will fall and he will fail miserably as a king. Do you know that the scriptures go on after this Davidic covenant to tell us that in order for a king to reign on an eternal throne forever and ever, he must be completely faithful. David says this to his son Solomon in 1 Kings. The Lord, may the Lord establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to they to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you, Solomon, shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. First Kings 6, the word of the Lord came to Solomon. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. You see what he's saying? He's saying the ultimate fulfillment to the covenant promise made to David is conditioned on a king that will be completely faithful, completely obedient with all of his heart. David, Solomon, every other king that ever ruled Israel will fail. Only Jesus, the Son of God, himself is faithful to keep the covenantal promises. So on one hand, it is unconditional For if the condition of the covenant was placed on David and his offsprings, the descendants from David, if Jesus wasn't in the equation, of course, we would be eternally separated away from God and the wrath that we deserve would be upon us. But the condition was fulfilled in Christ. Christ alone is righteous. Christ alone is obedient, faithful, and fully devoted to the Father's plan and father's will that's why god had to come in the person of jesus and live a faithful life that's the condition and christ fulfills it by being the only righteous one the only righteous one and david is humbled here he, 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 David is humbled at this point. It, it's remarkable. He knows what God has done. He knows the promises that he makes. He knows that he can't be the one, but he's looking future to the perfect one, Jesus, the King of Kings. Hudson Taylor is a missionary to China. Some of you know him years ago, of course. David, Hudson, one day, 
not David, Hudson Taylor, uh, was asked to speak at a large church that had gathered in Sydney, Australia. And the person was assigned to introduce Hudson Taylor, again, missionary, great missionary to China. Many people came to faith. And the man stood up and he began to talk about um, this, this, this extraordinary man doing extraordinary things. And, and he's done this and he's done that. And, and we've gotten this. And these many people came to faith. And this is what's going on. And he gets through this, all these accolades. And he, and he, and he turns to Hudson, uh, Hudson uh, uh, Taylor. And he says, here come, let our illustrious guest speak. Hudson Taylor takes, stands up. And there's a pause, and he says this, Dear friends, I am a little servant of an illustrious master. That's what I am. David, the king of Israel, who consolidated, brought unity to the nation, who, who, who after a, a major civil war and holy war, captured the city of Jerusalem and carried into the ark carried into that city, the Ark of the Covenant, living in, in cedar houses, has the celebrity status, <laughs> is looking around saying, I am a little servant of illustrious master. Do whatever you, O oh Lord, want to do with me. And he pours out his heart. He pours out worship to the living God. David sees his standing. David sees his status as not something he did, listen, but something God has given him in his sovereignty and in his grace (laughs) because of his greatness. Humility, they say, somebody said, not me. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. I think it was C.S. Lewis, I'm not sure. If there's anything that can distort your thinking if there's anything that can, can distort, distort your thinking, it's pride and arrogance. No wonder humility is the starting point, a prerequisite for wisdom when Proverbs tells us pride comes. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility, there is wisdom. It won't last long. David will, will step out of line. But right now, David is beginning his reign on the right foot. He sees himself as God really sees him in weakness and humility and insignificant that God is the one to be praised. He's struck by the awe and the wonder of who God is and that God has chosen him to be king over Israel. He's not puffed up. He's humble. He's aware that he is the servant of God. The present is rocking his world. And look, verse 22. Therefore, therefore, all these things that, are, that, are, that happened to me, In the present, therefore, you are great, O Lord. You are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and it's God's, verse 24. And you established for yourself, your people Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. One of the songs that we sing here at King's Chapel, haven't sung in a while, in a little while, but we like to sing. It's a great song. It's a song called Seeing You. Some of the words of that song, and the reason why we like it so much, and I really like the song, is, is some of the words it says, it says this. These are the words of the song. Our hearts respond to your revelation. All you are showing, all we have seen, commands a life of praise. No one can sing of things they have not seen. God, open our eyes toward a greater glimpse, a greater glimpse of you. Our hearts respond to your revelation. Worship starts with seeing you. great biblical truth. David is saying, therefore, (laughs) making this connection, I I, I see what is going on because of your present greatness, and now, therefore, you alone are great. There is none like you. He, He knew, David knew what Hannah, we already know, knew. 
And Hannah, remember, in 1 Samuel, way back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, in Hannah's prayer, there's none like you, she says, 2-2, 1 Samuel 2-2. There's none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. And, and, and the God who answered Hannah's prayer with the birth of Samuel had continued to be faithful to his great purposes for his people and for the whole world. In, in that the word of God now came to David through the prophet Nathan. That is why David and Hannah came to their conclusion according to what we have heard. It is your word. It is the promises. And David's experience was similar. We could say similar to ours even today. We know that we know what God is like. We, we know what God is like because of what God has revealed to us in his word. Faith come from hearing, hearing from the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. And David is responding to the greatness of God. So we did a series here way back, and we said that the essence of worship, when we talk about the foundation or the essence of worship, is not primarily about form or styles or, or music or, or music genre. It is, it is a response and to the glory of God, his radically otherness, his beauty, his infinite worth, his intrinsic value that he has in himself, his greatness, his preeminence, his moral excellence, his brightness, his, his glory, and our response, listen, our response to and the reflecting back of that glory is the essence of worship, and that's what's happening with David. He is rehearsing. He will rehearse the past. He's looking at what God has done in, in, in the present, and he is responding with gratitude. He's responding with gravity, and he, as he calls him Lord and God and all the words that's, that's used, there's this deep sense of, 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 of gravity, of God's greatness and gratitude of what God is doing. Even though I deserve wrath, right? I mean, we could all say this as believers. Even though we deserve wrath and separation, yet through the gospel and in union with Christ, I am forgiven, I am loved, I am accepted, I am reconciled, and that should explode with affection toward God. That's what's happening. David's not only saying you are great because of what you are doing now, because the promises of your word now, but I remember what I've heard according to scripture, of what you've done in the past. Verse 23 and verse 24, if you look at that, for those verses, is the rehearsal of the Exodus. The story of the Exodus, uh, where Israel was in bondage and God delivered them, uh, uh, demonstrating his faithfulness to them, liberating his people, fulfilling his promises that he made to both uh, Adam and really to to Abraham, right? I mean, that's what the Exodus is about. The Exodus is when God revealed himself to Moses as who? The great I am. God is the one who hears the cries of his people, takes pity on their suffering. God is the one who raises up a deliverer to save them. God is the one who sends the plagues to Egypt, divides the sea, drowns Pharaoh's army. God is the one who provided bread from heaven and water from the rock. God is the one who gives the law covenant and maintains, excuse me, the law covenant and what? Fills the temple with his glory. And all along it was God. By God's infinite grace and sovereignty that he chose Israel to be his people. David knows that. David knows what Deuteronomy says in the law when he says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. It's not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of the people, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath, the covenant, that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. David remembers the past and gives God all the glory. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and you have been given that new birth, (laughs) 
you should be looking back all the time for all that God has done for you through the gospel and realize what David realized. You alone establish the people. You alone deliver the people. You alone have rescued the people and become our God. It is not yours. And by rehearsing this, this exodus, David is reminding himself of God's grand story of departure, this deliverance from slavery to freedom. From, from serving and worshiping things that are more important to God. That's what slavery is. From treasuring things at the people of Israel to, to releasing them from bondage. That's what, that's what Exodus is all about. It's God's intervention. And David is remembering God's intervention. See, you can't save yourself. You can't save yourself. You can't justify yourself. You cannot give yourself meaning and purpose in life. You were created worshipers of the one true God. That's why in Exodus, if you read that story, God does, excuse me, Moses does not go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go so that we are not slaves anymore. That's not what he says. He says, let my people go so we're not slaves anymore so that we can go and worship the Lord. We're gonna be slaves to something. Death and sin or righteousness in life. Moses says, go. We need to go because God has called us to worship him. And Exodus teaches us, and King David is rehearsing it, that God is the only one can set us free, and he's the only one worthy of our worship. And he surrenders in worship. He is humbled by the work of God in their deliverance and in their redemption. You are great, he says. You redeemed your people. You make a name for yourself. You are great. You are awesome. You redeemed us from Egypt. You see what he's saying? There's not one shred of self-effort in any of those verses. (laughs) It's a story I read some time ago about a little boy. And this little boy carved this little boat out of a little knife. He whittled this piece of wood. He shaped it. He made it. He even, he even made the sail. He was so happy about this boat he made. And one day he went down to the nearby river to see if this thing would work. Would it float? We don't know. He put it in the water. It worked so well, the gust of wind took the boat, and all of a sudden he just watched the boat just sail away. <laughs> Beyond his reach. Out of sight. Gone. Several weeks later, this little boy was walking through town and looked in a window in a pawn shop and he saw his boat in the window, $5. He went into the store owner and he said, the boat you have in the window for $5, that's my boat. The store owner said, very nice little boy, go on your way, $5. If you want that boat, it's $5. He said, but I made it, I created it, I'm the one that did all that. He said, $5, I don't know, I don't know who you are, but $5. Little boy left the shop, determined to get his boat back. And started doing some odd jobs around the community, and he, gained, and he got his $5. And he went back to that store owner, handed him the $5. The boat was now his. The owner gave him the boat. And as he walked out of the shop, he was overheard saying this. Little boat, this is an amazing thing. I made you. I created you. You belong to me. But I lost you. But now I bought you back. I bought you back. You are Twice mine. God created us, but we, like sheep, Isaiah says, has gone astray. Due to our sin, we have drifted along to do our own thing. And yet God did the work of redemption. You did nothing. Jesus did everything. His sacrifice was the work needed to buy us back, and his work established for himself a people forever. Our response is simply repentance and faith toward God. God has made the way and redeemed his people. And like David, our response is simply worship, simply to receive the gift of grace that God has done on our behalf by faith alone and Christ alone. A heart touched by the gospel will become like the gospel, overwhelming with grace and gratitude is in Christ alone that we come to the saving knowledge 
that our sins have been forgiven and we can be reconciled to our God. God does the work. Stop trying. Receive his gift. The present, the past, and now the future. And now, verse 25, O Lord. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant, again, servant, concerning his house, and do as you have said, you have spoken. And your name, verse 26, will be magnified forever, saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. The house of your servant David will be established before you, for you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant. You showed us this. I will build you a house, a dynasty, Therefore, your servant has found courage, what you've already said and what you will do, to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true. You hear that, family? You are God, your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So that, it may continue forever before you, for you, O Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. And when David says, and now, verse 25, he is continuing his prayer based on the preceding words of praise and what God has done and what God is doing. David's prayer now is, is that the Lord would do what you promised. You promised, now, now do as you say, Confirm it for us and do as you said. It, it's it's, it's Jesus' prayer, really. Your kingdom come. Your, you said your kingdom was coming. We pray as children of God, right? Your kingdom come. Thy will be done. Do we, don't raise your hand, do we regularly rejoice in the promises of God? Do we regularly worship and have hearts of gratitude because of the promises of God. Now, certainly, there are promises of the Bible, and you have to be careful. There are certainly promises of God that don't apply to you. You have to be careful. You can't claim every single thing. Some were actually written for certain things, certain people, certain individuals. There's certain genre of scriptures. But there are plenty in there, like David, where you're not, your, your seed is not going to become the king of kings. But... But like David, we can rejoice in the greatness of God, in the fulfillment of promises God has made to you. Can we not? Can we not pray that God will be exalted in the earth, that, that God's name would be hollow, that God's name would be great? Yes, I think we can. I, I think we can. And, and because, of, because we worship a God who makes promises, keeps promises, our heart, or, or, the, or the heart of our prayers should be passionate and bold and confident because of who God is. That's what we see David doing. His prayers are a confident prayer. They're bold prayers that God will fulfill the things that God said he has done. He may have sat down before the Lord, but let me tell you, he's standing on the promises of God. David was not caught up with his own concerns, his own thoughts, his own ideas, his own desires, his own ambitions. His prayer is inspired by the word of the Lord as he submits himself to what God has said. The past couple of days, we were in a pastoral, the six pastors in the church here at Kings, get together once a year for time of prayer, fellowship, and do working and thinking through some stuff. And, and we were talking about the Word of God and talking about the authority of the Word of God and, and how some have gone off the rails that don't stand on, on the Word of God and it's the authoritative Word of God. And we, we, we brought up an individual, I won't tell you who it is, Andy Stanley. It's just dangerous. It's dangerous. You listen to him, whatever. It's just dangerous. He wants to throw out the Old Testament, which would throw out half of the New Testament. We stand on the whole promise of God. We stand on all the Scripture. You need discernment, yes. You need to keep things in context, yes. You need to be careful. You're reading the Old Testament through the lenses of the New Testament, yes. But all of the Bible, all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture. 
David is standing on the promise of God. You know, it's easy to read this text, though. I want you, I want you to see this. It's easy to read this because we have knowledge. Sitting here today in Glenmont, we have knowledge of the fulfillment of David's dynasty. We know that the seed of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham, was a boy born to a virgin girl named Mary. We know that to be true. David didn't understand that at this moment, at least not all of it. It was veiled. It was still unknown. But what's interesting, and, and it caught me, got me thinking, I wanted to help, you know, give you some things to think about. David did not know exactly how this was going to work out. We know exactly how it's going to work out. Yet David seems awfully, awfully prayerful and, and with an attitude of worship. And I had to think, you know what? We know. Are we as worshipful and grateful as David who didn't know? I mean, shouldn't we, I don't know, if there was a scale, shouldn't we be even more excited than David? He doesn't even know what the future is. We know the future. We know the plans and purposes of God and the house of David that will be established will be the Lord Jesus Christ who will be great forever. We know the trustworthiness and goodness of God because of the cross, of the, of the, of the, of the I should say, of the birth and, and the, the manger and the life and, and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. David is just exploding here, as we ought to as well. Look, look at the frequency and the variety of divine names David is using. You really, if you have um, an ESV, I think NAS as well, you have capital letters where it says Lord, uh, verse 25, verse 26, verse 27, capital letters, and verse 28 and 29, lower letters, because it's a different Hebrew word. So you have Lord, capital letters, Yahweh, um, Lord of hosts, which is sovereign. You have Lord of hosts, sovereign, Yahweh, a covenant name, sovereign. You see all these different words. Verse 28 and 29, O Lord, Adonai, um, Master Lord. He is just, he is just rehearsing and, and bringing in greater and deeper meanings to the person of, of, of God, to, to the nature and revelation of who God is. Alexander McLaren writes this. He says, strong love delights to speak the beloved's name. Strong love delights to speak the beloved name. Each fresh utterance, he's talking about the different words here, each fresh utterance of it is a fresh appeal to his revealed nature and betokens another wave of blessedness passing over David's spirit as he thinks of God, end quote. That's what's happening to David. He's thinking of the, the, the magnitude of who God is. He's interchanging names and, 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 and marveling and wonder, and wonder of his greatness. And then in verse 29, you'll see over and over, twice in verse 29, once in verse 25, and verse 26, the word forever. You see that? David is, is petitioning about the, the, the permanence of the promise of God forever, forever. Verse 29, for you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. David turned the promise into prayer, and it not only authenticated his acceptance of the word of God, it emphasized, as he's praying, for future generations, it's forever. But again, no matter how majestically David is, is, is uh, um, thinking of God, he couldn't possibly understand the, the, the depths and the, and the breadth and the width of David's covenantal promise. He's trying to build him a temple, remember? He was just trying to build him a temple. And now he's stunned and he's flabbergasted at the blessings of God that are forever. God shows himself to David as he did to Paul in Ephesians. He's able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. Hmm. So it is true, as we read the Old Testament, when we read the Old Testament, we do so in light of the New Testament, and that's the right thing to do. And even though David did not grasp all the majestic grandeur of what lied ahead with the coming of the Lord Jesus, he is teaching us about worship. He is teaching us about wonder. He is teaching us about the revelation of God and when God reveals himself to us and our response. But we know, but we know that Jesus came announcing that the kingdom of David, that the kingdom of God, 
The kingdom of heaven has arrived. The son of God, uh, excuse me, the son of David, the true and better king, Jesus has come. He has fulfilled all the Old Testament yearnings for a righteous king. It is, it is his kingdom where the subjects, like David, like us, redeemed sinners, are redeemed by grace, submitting to his commands, living in an eternal and righteous kingdom that is already and not yet. And this royal decree of this king is to come. To come to be set free by the power and the work of the gospel. Living in submission to the king, the true king, the son of David, the son of God, in a life in a covenant relationship poured out in his blood. Marked by hesed, eternal love, covenantal love, marked by mission, making his great name known to the demonstration and declaration of the gospel. And now, as this chapter closes, I think we see clearly the contrast between Saul and David, between the gospel, how to receive the gospel and how to reject the gospel. King Saul, by by clinging tenaciously to what he guarded as his own kingly prerogative, lost the kingdom. David, more concerned about honoring the Lord than guarding his own reputation, his kingdom is made sure forever. The reason for David's confidence is in God, not himself. His humble confidence is based in the God who made and keeps covenants. Any promise God has made is a sure promise. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of the results of works, so that no one may boast. Listen now as we close. God is a giving God. <laughs> he gives, we receive. He's happy to do so. He's constantly giving in a gazillion ways to show forth his love and grace, his power and kindness, and its pinnacle of grace is the cross of Jesus Christ. And seeing correctly his, his giving to us out of his abundant love results in our delighting in him and, and expressing that delight through praising him for all that he is and all that he has done. God's giving nature shows himself or shows itself more fully in the provision God has made through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The penalty that was great and could never be paid for our sin is separation and damnation. It can't be earned. We can't get out of this mess on our own. Not through any amount of good deeds of our own. God freely provides the payment for our release so that we can boast not in ourselves, but in God. His greatness. We get the benefit. He gets to show himself who he really is. So, you could be like King Saul if you're here this morning. Full of self. Full of self-effort. Full of pride. And have this major hindrance for your salvation. Proverbs 16, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the pride, before a fall. Pride says, I can do it myself, I don't need God. I don't need to be saved. He refuses to humble himself and to admit you need help. You need salvation. David was humble, I implore you this morning. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and God will raise you up. And God will hear you. This table, in many ways, should be marked humility. Because this table reminds us and brings us to the place of remembering how wicked we are and how greatly God loves us. The, the bread that, that's on the table represents the work of Christ and giving of his body. Brutally beaten and hung on a cross for our sins. It was that, it is that bad. Your sin is that bad. My sin is that bad. The cup represents the blood of the new covenant, he said. In his blood. The oath-bound relationship that he has made that we receive. Because he has done it for us. 
The cup represents his blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. If you humble yourself and acknowledge your sin and humbly receive the gift that God has given you in the perfect life and the death and resurrection of Jesus, if you humble yourself and receive that, come to the table. If you're not there yet, we love you. Don't come. This is for followers of Christ. And maybe you've never said, I'm a sinner. I do need salvation. I I am wicked. I do need to be saved. I am humble enough to know that I am not perfect. There's only one perfect king, and his name is Jesus. I'm not Jesus. Maybe today's the day, then you'll come for the first time and take communion as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the band's going to play. We're going to quietly come before the Lord. We're going to confess our sins maybe for the first time for you, and then we're going to repent, which means turn. We don't, we don't want to live there. We want, we want to say, Lord, help me to turn from that, and then we're going to celebrate. We're going to sit before the Lord because Jesus has sat down as our high priest, and he has paid the full penalty for our sins, and we'll celebrate the cross and the empty tomb. And when you're ready, come. As I said, double, come down here and go out that way. You can come right away and take your communion back with you. You can wait a little while. It's up to you. David sat before the Lord. Our entrance before our God is Jesus. The bread and the cup remind us of that salvation. Let us worship him with wonder, awe, reverence, gravity, gratitude, love. Father, thank you for this prayer that has been offered by your servant. That his prayer points us to the true king who lived a perfect life, who obeyed completely, whose whole heart and soul was devoted to his father. And now by faith we receive that. His righteousness on our account, his death, our forgiveness so that we can enter into your presence and celebrate the work of redemption. Help us, humble us before the King of Kings, that we may celebrate all that you have done on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen.